Hi, I'm Allison Pease, Associate to the Provost for Faculty at John Jay College. Welcome to Season 3 of our Distinguished Teaching Series, in which we celebrate the dedication to student-centered, innovative teaching practices of our Distinguished Teaching Prize winners. In today's interview, I talk with Jill Gross Pfeiffer, Associate Professor of Psychology and the only John Jay faculty member to have won the prize two times. I begin the interview by asking Jill what winning the prize meant to her the first time in 2009 and again this year in 2019. So in 2009, I was a pretty new teacher. Um, I had started at John Jay in 2007. Um, And so I was trying out a lot of new things. Um, I remember actually quite clearly in my application and my putting in my materials uh, when I asked for evidence of innovative teaching, me putting in things but with these little parenthetical um, side quotes saying, I'm not sure if this is really innovative, (laughs) um, but this is what I'm doing. Um, And so I think at that time I was teaching in a learning community. I was teaching a large section of Psych 101 using clickers, which is like an audience response system in order to try and um, get total class participation and to gauge attitudes and also student understanding through the class. Um, So I was trying out these different technologies and different types of pedagogies um, and doing some basic assessment of whether or not things were working but I I felt very new and sort of hesitant so it was really affirming to me to have that acknowledgement in 2009 that I should continue so I think then I'm not sure that I felt that I was particularly deserving of the prize so I felt like I had to live up to it so I sort of threw myself into um really, I guess, looking at pedagogical methods and thinking about teaching in a much deeper way than I had previously because I felt that that was really required of me. Um, And so since doing that, I feel like I've tried a lot of things since then. Um, And I've gotten much better at assessment. It still means a a huge amount to me. I I, like the, the acknowledgement of my efforts is really important to me. And the fact that I know several students nominated me is really affirming that. And, and I get that from students a lot, that they do validate what I'm doing, that they appreciate what I'm doing. If you were a student in my class, you would know that I survey you a lot of the time to find out about what are your study habits, what works best for you, did this work for you, did this not work for you, why does it, why doesn't it? So I'm always gathering sort of formative assessment from students to try and figure out whether something is working or whether something could be better. Do you survey students only to find out whether things are working? Or is there some element of metacognition involved for them that you want them to Mm -hmm. be aware of what you're doing, that you want them to reflect on what learning works for them? Right. So I do, I, I do try and be very transparent about why I'm doing things the way I'm doing them. Um, and so it says in my syllabus, and I say in the first day of class, these are the ways that I'm going to be teaching, and they're really based on evidence that shows this is how students learn best. And then I ask them how they think they would learn best. 
So it, it is a little bit of both. I would say I ask students, especially in the introductory classes, to reflect a lot on their learning um, and the ways that they learn and their study habits. And I don't do that as much in upper level classes. I'm, I'm asking more, is this working for you? I think perhaps because of the the nature of the classes are a little bit different as well. So I know the classes that I teach at the 300 level in the undergraduate curriculum are uh, traditionally thought of as difficult classes because they are focused on the biological basis of psychology. And so many of our students don't have much of a background in science, and so they struggle sometimes with because they seem like relatively abstract concepts and they haven't necessarily covered them in other classes. So I am always thinking about what's what's helping them understand and what's helping them retain the information, what's helping them think deeply about the subject area and how are their skills improving. And in addition to thinking about that, you wrote in some of the materials you submitted that you're interested in helping them with their personal growth. What's interesting to me about that, or seemingly challenging, is that you very often teach large sections. And so can you tell me how you help students think about or work towards their own personal growth, and specifically how you do it at scale? Mm-hmm. So I, I often think that teaching a large class, I, I might revisit this when I'm actually doing grading and stuff, but um, that it's really helpful in many ways because the class can be seem really large when you want to collect data. Like So if you're doing a demonstration in class and you want to replicate a study, and if you've got 200 students sitting in front of you and you ask them a, a few questions and we look at the data, well, sometimes we replicate results and sometimes we get the opposite findings of result of published studies, and that's an interesting discussion as well. Um, but I think you can also create small environments within a large classroom by doing small group work um, and just having students even turn to their partners. So... I mentioned already that I'm using clickers. Mm-hmm. Um, I use them in my medium-sized class too, classes What's, of 36. What is a medium size? Well, you're like standard, I guess, at John Jay is 36 right. students. So I use them in those classes too. Um, because I feel, because I've learned that if I ask a question and people raise their hands even after discussing with a neighbor. I hear a few answers. We alight on the correct answer or something that seems like it's reasonable. We talk about why it's correct. But it doesn't necessarily involve... my. Your perception is, or my perception used to be, that everybody was on the same page. Mm. It seemed like students were on the same page. People would be nodding. I I would ask, Did, does everybody understand? Do we need to discuss that further? And if they said no, I would move on. Um, but I think when you use clickers, you really get a true understanding of what everybody in the room believes right. about this particular question. Right. 
And even and, and so what I like to do with the clicker questions is have people discuss with their neighbor or the person behind them or in front of them before they click in their answer. But it's still them making the final decision about what their answer is going to be. Mm-hmm. So, so going back to the, to the question about personal growth, um, I think you can create these smaller environments within a large classroom quite easily. Um, and students really like that too. Um, so sometimes I have small group assignments where the big class of 200 students are working in groups of four, three or four or five on, I'd say, a critical thinking problem. Like we've covered some materials in class and how are they going to apply that to real life. Mm-hmm. But in that intro class, what I'm what's always in the back of my mind is how is this material, especially as it's a gen ed course, it isn't specific to psych majors, um, how is this course going to help you in the rest of your life? Mm-hmm. So, and there's a lot because it's a broad survey course. So we talk about health and we talk about stress and we talk about mental illness and we talk about help-seeking behaviors and we talk about sleep and we talk about study habits and how learning and memory works. So I think all of those are really pertinent to every everybody's life, but particularly college students' lives. And so those are the things that I often ask them to reflect about um, and have assignments around so they are um, encouraged to think metacognitively about the application of psychology to their life, but also how they can use that to improve their lives or the lives of other people around them. But also understanding who you are, right? Um, I think that also comes from a lot of these reflective exercises. Who am I? Who am I as a person? What are my goals? What are my aspirations? Um, I think that's also part of my classes. And and I want students to feel empowered. Um, I want them to believe in themselves. And so I often set challenging work, but with the, uh, with the caveat that I say, I know this is going to be challenging, but you can do it, and I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you the tools that you need to be able to succeed in, with this. So, yeah, I think all of those things are important for personal development. You participated in the Teaching and Learning Center seminar on teaching at a Hispanic-serving institution yeah. and have been doing some work to follow up on that. Can you share one or two things that you have learned or learned again mm. in, the, in the seminar um, that you find interesting or that you've applied to your teaching? Yeah, so I think one thing that I have been aware of in the past, but I think this really hit home for me, is how important it is for our students to see themselves reflected in the materials that they're reading um, uh, as scholars, right? So the scholar, the scholarly work of um, people from minoritized groups especially has not been well represented, um, certainly in psychology. And so... In the past, when I have taught a, a little bit about the history of psychology, 
I've kind of skimmed over the beginning and focused a lot on people who have made dynamic changes in the field of psychology, who are typically women and people of color, who've kind of changed the face of psychology in terms of the kinds of questions that are being asked. So there's much more of a focus, I think, on social justice as a consequence of of opening or diversifying the field of psychology. And so I think it, it really underscored that, that that was so important for students who belong to minoritized groups in terms of having strong role models, Mm -hmm. right? And as a white woman, yes, I can be a role model for other women, but I'm certainly not going to be a role model for um, people of color because they won't see themselves reflected in me. And, you know, and plus I have this funny accent, so I'm clearly from another culture, And so I wanted to make sure that the textbook that I used in my intro class was much more representative Um, and also tried to... So the other thing that that came over very strongly in that seminar was advice from outside speakers talking about decolonizing their curricula. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that I've been trying to... Institute, um, and it's it was helped by having an open source book, so I could delete stuff and add stuff as I wanted, and so I, you know, so there are just some theories that are very ethnocentric in psychology textbooks without acknowledging that, mm-hmm. um, and so those are some of the things that we sort of focused in on in in the class to um, question some of those theories. And I have to say that so that was the other wonderful thing about having a class of 200 students. If you are talking about replicating studies that may be specific to white middle class men, right, who live in the Midwest, mm-hmm. you don't always replicate the findings. And then that really is great to open up the conversation of, well, why do you think our class data are so different from these? And, we, and it's not because we have a small sample size. Right. right? So in a smaller class, that's always a, a potential reason for a difference. Right. But we, uh, in, in, in the intro class, it's clear that the vast percentage of students are from collectivistic society, uh, cultures, right? So mm-hmm. um, whereas most of the data have been collected from people who endorse individualistic um, values. So that's a huge difference. Parenting styles are often very different. Health-seeking behaviors are often very different. So all of those, I think, are really relevant. Um, And I want our students to to know that that's really important and their their perspectives are important and being acknowledged in psychology and that they will have important insights going out into the world as well that they you know from their own cultural perspective are providing important insights you describe yourself as a reformed abuser of PowerPoint. Um, can you tell me what that means? And I'm particularly interested in what others who rely on PowerPoint in their classes can learn from you. 
Okay, so when I was an undergraduate, um, I had many lecture classes in the days before PowerPoint. Sometimes somebody might have an overhead projector or um, one of those things that you could write on. I've forgotten what they're called now. Um, But it's essentially an overhead projector um, or slides very occasionally. But they weren't... They weren't easy, um, but but the I mean the the important thing is that the uh, the mode of education was this passive transmission of information. We would just write as quickly as we could. So with that model in mind, that's when how I first started teaching was that I thought that I had to lecture, and that my what I would be doing better than the people that lectured at me would be to be providing, um, you know, um, slides that had pictures that illustrated what I was trying to say or bullet points. Um, Yeah, that I was just lecturing better than they were. And I think that was also encouraged or reinforced by advice from other people when I asked them. So I'm teaching this course. How do you teach it? Would you mind sharing your syllabus? And here's a textbook recommendation, and the textbook would come with this bank of slides. And so I assumed that's the way you should teach without really questioning it. So, And what I've also learned now is that death by PowerPoint <laughs> is, is a real phenomenon, right? Mm. So it's not... I do use PowerPoint, but I use it in a different way in my classes. So I used to use it way too many slides, way too much stuff on the slides. Um, It was kind of like my notes were up, projected for the students to see effectively. Um, But it's not a good way of for students to... Even if it were, if anyone was presenting, right? So I teach a teaching of psychology class to doctoral students, and one of the things that we try and institute early in the semester is that teaching is not presenting, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I was definitely presenting. I was trying to be entertaining and presenting, but I was presenting. Um, and so I've come away from that to a, a student-centered way of teaching but also when I use a slide if it's informational to explain something I try and follow Maya's multimedia best practices so there's a a whole body of research on if you're going to use PowerPoint slides what should they look like and it should be a picture uh, because we can't process words on the slide if somebody's talking right Mm. so you can either read Mm -hmm. And the person, the teacher has to be quiet. Or if you're talking, then there shouldn't be words on the slide or there should be very minimal number of words on the slide. So if you're explaining a picture, that's all fine because the students are using a different um, part of their brain to process the picture than they are to process the words that are coming in through their ears. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of advice about how to, if you're going to use multimedia, how to use it, and I wasn't aware of those um, those rules, if you like, at the beginning. So yeah.
podcast to prepare your students for in-class activities. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do and how it works? I'm unfamiliar with vodcasts. So vodcasts are a podcast with a visual component, hence the V. <laughs> um, and so what those often look like are something like PowerPoint slides. In fact, I often do it from a PowerPoint. The PowerPoint slides that may have minimal text. I now am using Maya's multimedia best principles. Can uh, you spell that? M A Y E R. Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe it's Maya, but I always say Maya. Um, so yeah. So the vodcasts have minimal text, more pictures, and I am trying to condense the main points of a reading, often a textbook chapter or a textbook module, in case students don't have time to read the textbook. Um, and also maybe to explain some of the things that I think are difficult to understand, but are really essential if we want to engage in higher order thinking in the class. So I teach this class called, well, it's called perception right now, but it's going to be called sensation and perception, but it is about sensation and perception. It's a 300 level course and it's mostly about how our senses work. So students have to learn about the biology of the sensory systems, but also how does our brain interpret that information? And so when I took this course as an undergraduate, we had a lab component to it. So we had the lectures, but we also had labs. And when I first started teaching this, I couldn't see how you could possibly do without the lab component. But we don't have labs at John Jay. And so in 2009, what I was doing was using a CD-ROM with these canned experiments. Mm. And um, I would assign them for homework, that we would cover some stuff in class, and then I'd say, okay, now go do your homework. You're going to do this mini-experiment, and you're going to answer these questions. That didn't work so well because students didn't always get the instructions. I mean, they were really straightforward to me, but for naive uh, participants and naive experimenters, they didn't always get what they were meant to be doing, and they didn't always understand the point of the experiment. So, And then CD-ROMs became pretty much obsolete. Um... And so then I started to flip my class. So I needed students to either read or at least have some sense of understanding before they came to the class so we could do these mini experiments in class. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's what I've been doing in that class. Um, so the, the vodcasts are really just to get students ready to engage with the experiment to be able to interpret the results in terms of the, um, the theories that they're trying to investigate and so on. I also, I think that's not originally how I started to do it. I think when I first started to do it, and I can't even remember exactly why I started doing it, but I know why I started doing it. It was because I wanted students to read and I didn't think they were reading. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I'll just 
give them like some sound bites about this. What's the average length of a vodcast? Yeah. So they're getting shorter. I'm getting better at it. I would say I should aim for 20 minutes. So if my students are listening to this, they were like, oh, she's never at 20 minutes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I often, I often do go over 20 minutes. But sometimes I might make two, um, mm-hmm. and the, I'm trying to make them 20-minute length. And I'm now going back and editing them or redoing mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Because I think when I first started doing them, I'd often do it when I was prepping for class. And so I would record this vodcast but it was almost like exactly what I might say in class you know including the little let's do this little exercise and let's do this little demonstration and then and now so they're very complete and they're actually quite useful for me for prepping because I can remember what I what I did last time and what worked and what didn't work um, without taking extensive notes but um, but I don't think that's really what students need it's maybe nice if you miss the class. That's the other thing, right? So if students miss a class, there's material that they can look at. There's explanations for them. So I, I liked it from that perspective, that it would maybe get them a little bit more ready for class, and if they miss class, they would have some materials. What surprises you about teaching at this point in your mm. career? surprises me I don't know if it's surprising I think if you would ask me I don't know that it surprises me now but looking back I think I would have been surprised to know that you can learn so much and still feel that there's so much more to learn Mm. right so I feel like I've I'm a fairly experienced teacher now but I don't feel like I'm I feel like I'm like on the third step and maybe there's like 20, 30, 40 more steps. And probably when I'm on the 30th step, I might say, oh, no, what was I talking about? There's flights more. What do you um, want to get better at next? I think what I want to better understand is student time management, like how much time our students have to focus on out of class work. Um, and really be realistic about what they can do in the time that they have. Because I, I probably am guilty, I'm just realizing this, this is like my epiphany this week, um, that I am assigning too much work, or I'm assigning, not assigning the right kind of work um, for them to do out of class. For those who might say, oh, but this is college, and a college degree would be meaningless unless you assigned... X amount of work. Do you have a rejoinder to that? Um, I don't think it's the amount of work. I think it's what students can do that's important. So it's the, if we can get there, if we can get the skills there that we want them to have. Um, so I am aware, like, the vodcasts are a way to get students ready for class, but they do detract from reading for instance so and I do want our students to be great readers so how do I compensate for that so there are you know I haven't figured out all the trade-offs but I am hoping that we can still get to a stage where we're not dumbing down the curriculum we're just kind of making it more efficient 
one small thing that you do in your teaching that you think if others adopted, they too could be helping students learn? Mm. So I think vodcasts are really great and they are really easy to make um, and students really appreciate them. And so, of course, I survey my students about, do you like them? What do you like about them? Blah, blah, blah. Right? So and what I would do say, students like about so them? So they like that they can go over the material at their own pace. And I think that's particularly relevant for the fact that we have students at many different levels in different classes and different levels of preparedness. Um, maybe some have English as their second language, and those are additional challenges, right? So you might, it just might just take a little bit longer to get the vocabulary, or um, you might just need to hear a certain thing a few more times. Um, and so I think that's what they like about them. I I am still tempted to have the lengthy podcasts available with the a shortened version. So at a minimum, watch this. If you missed class, watch this. Right? So there might be different levels mm-hmm. um, that they could engage with. But that, I would say, is the number one thing, that they really like that, that they can play it over again. Um, I also often do them for assignments or showing how to use a particular technology like a database or something like that. So even though we've done it in class and they've had some practice, here's another reminder if you've forgotten or if you weren't in class that day. And is the software to create these readily available online or is there a particular program you recommend? So. So if I'm showing how to do something um, like using a library database, I use Screencast-O-Matic, which is free. And if I am making a sort of a content vodcast, I tend to use PowerPoint. So it's PowerPoint 2013. You can record narration on each slide. Um, and then you export the slide uh, at the the slideshow as a as a as a video, so it's um, an MP4 basically. And then I upload the MP4s to YouTube. So I don't post the uh, the whole video. I'm just posting the link, so student so it doesn't clog up Blackboard basically. Wonderful. They're big files. So if you imagine one of your students now in ten years. What would you hope they would remember about your class? Mm. I hope that they would remember that somebody cared about them, um, which I think, again, my students know that I care about them and I want them to succeed, and that maybe they had a transformational moment where they believed in themselves and saw themselves going in a different trajectory that perhaps they weren't just going to get a bachelor's degree, but maybe they were thinking about graduate school or they decided that they were going to be a psych major, even though they thought they were going to be um, a criminal justice major. And, and that maybe that those experiences in those classes changed what they thought about themselves as a learner, but also maybe where they wanted to be in the world. That's what I would like. Jill Gross Pfeiffer. <laughs> Winner of the Distinguished Teaching Prize, both 2009 and now in 2019. Thanks for your time. Thank you.